Number 226, Brother Randall has asked that we mark that and we'll use that at the proper time after the later point in our service this morning. As was already mentioned, how delightful it is to welcome visitors to our midst, those who have chosen to be with us today, as well as our regular membership. We're certainly excited and happy that each of us on this Lord's Day, Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10, can assemble to worship the true and living God of heaven. As Brother Ted mentioned in the announcement, certainly the Bible Bowl and its efforts have consumed much of our thinking for the last three months or so. And we're so very delighted that things went as they did yesterday. We were able to participate. We were able to, in fact, see our youngsters and their knowledge of the revelation that perhaps wasn't there back at the beginning of the month of June. And furthermore, many of us have been reminded of such great truths about that book as well. Perhaps we can take that knowledge with us for the rest of our lives and use it to help us better understand, appreciate, and implement the characteristics found in the great Word of God. In addition to that, that gospel meeting of which I will be blessed to be a part, my family and I, beginning next Sunday, will be at the Antioch Church of Christ in Jackson County, just over the hill there on Flynn's Creek. So we would urge you, please, keep that meeting in your prayers, that all will go well, that the gospel as I attempt to deliver and proclaim it will in fact be just as God would have it be, and in fact that much and eternal fruit might be brought to the glory and kingdom of the God of heaven. Those services on Sunday through Wednesday of next week will be such that all the evening services, including Sunday, are at 7 p.m. So again, we'd urge you, please, keep us in your prayers that that meeting will, in fact, redound in the glory of God. You might have noted in the bulletin the lesson title for today is An Unworthy Foundation, taken from Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11. And it is to that particular chapter that we will refer a number of times during the course of the lesson this morning. By way of introduction, though, at least to prompt us toward that consideration, I think these statements are in order. First of all, we understand that a person's character is extremely important. For after all, that's truly what an individual is. It's not what a person pretends to be. It's not what they appear to be before others, but their character is what they truly are. It's what God knows them to be. There are many occasions when you and I can be fooled by someone else. They can pretend in front of us. They can pretend to be something that they really are not. Or they may, in fact, give the appearance of being something very different than what they truly know that they are. But their character is what they really are. It is as God sees them. This morning, as we give some thought to the issue of a person's character, this squarely touches each of us. Randy Bybee, as well as each of you. What kind of person does God see me, and how does He see you? And we're specifically going to ask that in light of the nature of the foundation of a person's life. A strong character, a solid and stable character is not founded on something that's weak, something that's unstable, something that is shifting as the sands of time. It is rather, as we would expect, if the character is to be solid... It must be founded, too, on something that's solid. It is for that reason I would invite you to give some thought with me this morning. What is the basis for your character and mine? And as we give thought to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, we specifically are going to ask issues that perhaps this example will help to point out to each of us. We know that when we build a house... It is necessary for that foundation to be strong and sturdy. 
After all, it does little good in the long term of matters to use the finest and strongest of materials to build it if the foundation upon which it's built is weak, is crumbling, is unstable, is unsatisfactory or inadequate. If the foundation isn't strong, we should not expect the house built on it to be strong either. An organization also must be strong if it's to last. It needs to have a mission statement, and it in fact requires that it have an objective and a purpose that is long-standing and that will meet the needs of people. There's an example that also might fit in here so beautifully. We all are familiar with a tractor. We know that they're strong machines. They can accomplish a great deal. They can lift large round bales of hay, perhaps two of them, and place them where you want them. They can plow, pull a plow deeply into the soil for days on end, plowing greatly to turn soil and make it ready for the growth season. Furthermore, you can use them to push over a tree. We understand that a tractor is a strong and powerful and useful device. Try driving one into a creek bed. Upon those shifting and moving creek gravels, a tractor is almost useless. It'll dig itself into the gravel and soon be unable to move at all. In the point well taken, you see, as strong as a tractor is, if its foundation isn't solid, if its foundation too is weak, the tractor itself is almost rendered useless. That highlights the need for your life and mine. If it is to be as strong as God would have it be, if it is to be as influential as God would wish it to be, if it is to have that powerful set of characteristics, it must be founded upon something that is stable and solid and lasting. Thankfully, we have the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes to help hone our thinking and to point us in the following set of directions, and it is to that chapter. I would ask you to turn with me as we look at the various things that might be used as the foundation of life. One by one, as we list these, we're going to ask, are they solid or not? Are they strong or not? Would they be a suitable foundation or not? And by the time we reach the end of the lesson, we should be ready to ask, what then is a suitable foundation for your life and for mine? Beginning in verse number 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it says, I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? Pausing at that point, we notice that Solomon at this juncture of his life had an interest in providing a foundation in verses 1 and 2 that was based upon mirth, pleasure, and laughter. It is for that reason that some of these thoughts come before us. It might well be that you're aware as well as I am of individuals who borrow that same philosophy of life. They may be quick to say, life is short, live it up while you're here. In their mind, that is the basic impetus and thrust of all of life. Enjoy all of it that you can. Give no thought to anything else. Life is meant to be fun and pleasurable, and that should be the sole basis for making every decision. That idea, just as surely as we understand its occurrence today, you might notice it isn't the only time in the Bible it occurs. In Acts, the 17th chapter, we have record of the Epicureans 
and we are reminded that their philosophy was also the same. Life is short. Enjoy it and let pleasure be the central directive of all that you do. When you and I give thought to issues like that, doesn't it remind us of the Lord's teaching in Luke the 12th chapter? On that occasion, there was a man who, in fact, his crops had brought forth abundantly to the point that his approach was this. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build larger ones, bigger ones, and I'll store up all my goods. But did you notice the statement that this farmer made? He says, I'll say to myself, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for there are as many goods laid up for many years. Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He is a guiding philosophy and guiding principle of life was ease, relaxation, fun, and enjoyment. We should be quick to say, God does have an interest in, in us enjoying the capability of laughter, and it's all right to enjoy some fun. But it is entirely an error to let that be the guide for all that life is to be. After all, consider with me statements of what Solomon said here. Verse number 1 of Ecclesiastes 2. Behold, this also is vanity. Solomon had at his disposal all of the means whereby he could enjoy entertainment, fun, laughter without end, and yet he came to the conclusion this is vanity. It does not provide a solid, strong, stable, lasting foundation. Isn't it sad when so many in our worlds choose that to be the aim and goal of everything? It's vanity. It is not that which is lasting. What else might well be considered? You'll notice near the bottom. Notice verse 3. Solomon also tried something else. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. There are also those in our world who choose to use various substances. Perhaps we should be specific. Substances like alcohol, substances like drugs. They think that these drugs provide some means whereby wisdom will come that with this drink they'll be able to better approach the problems of life and be better equipped to handle those problems. Others use various substances, as I've mentioned. Sometimes they're prescription kind of drugs, sometimes they're not. All the while, their attempt to use these often leads to addiction to them. Often, at least, it leads to frequent usage. And for many of them, they think that in this, they can find the approach to life that will have wisdom within it. Is this a strong foundation? Is it one that would be recommendable to others? As you can see near the bottom, one of the statements in this verse is a very telling one. Verse 3 again says, Acquainting mine heart with wisdom. There are those who frequent various and sundry kinds of shops, and they will sit around and fellowship with others and imbibe these substances, and they'll think that they can in wisdom approach the problems and solve them directly, and do so with an air of intellectuality to them, that they in wisdom have what the vast majority of others do not. 
they think they've become special, at least in part with these substances. Question, is this a strong foundation or not? Is this a rightful approach to the issues of life and the principles in it? There at the top, our answer is given rather directly as follows. Be not drunk with wine, Paul wrote, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. In Proverbs 20 verse 1, same writer, Solomon, had this to say. Powerfully, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Reminding us in these passages as well as others of the error of this kind of approach, it is not a solid and stable foundation. It provides, in fact, a shifting and weak one to the point where we could even make this statement from 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6. Paul wrote, We are of the day, therefore be sober. And that word sober carries with it the notion of solid mental judgment and capacity. Any kind of substance in which we take that purposefully leads to impairment of judgment, that purposefully leads to a long-standing and ongoing relationship of that, is that which God condemns. Be it ethyl alcohol, be it in fact these other kinds of spuriously made substances. God condemns them. This is not a strong foundation for life. It's weak, it's shifting, it's unsatisfactory. What else did Solomon try? It would perhaps be fair at this point to notice Solomon was one who had enough money and enough resources to make attempts at trying these. This is his reflection on how well it worked. Thirdly, might we ask, what about verse 4, same chapter? I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Verse 11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Human accomplishment. Isn't it an impressive thing to notice that there are many in our world who base the nature of their existence, the character of their standing in terms of self-worth and self-esteem on my accomplishments, the car that I'm able to drive, the house that I'm able to afford. Is it fine enough? Enough rooms in it? Is the car expensive enough? My status symbol as far as the clothing that I wear isn't it interesting? Human accomplishment, it seems in the mind of so many, serve as the basis. Is that a solid foundation for life? Here are some continuing thoughts about that idea. There is no question 
that using the resources that we're able to have is something that God commands us to do wisely. We're told in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 that a servant is, should and must be found faithful as a steward. One who uses wisely the abilities, the talents, the possessions that he has. We aren't talking about that. We're asking, do those possessions serve as the basis for my being in yours? The basis for our character. You'll notice that Solomon here said that all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Some of these remarks point us to this. We know there are so many things in the material realm. Solomon listed many of them for us. Beginning in verse 4, great works, he said. He also mentioned houses, vineyards, gardens, orchards, trees, pools of water. He also mentions various means of supporting all of this, the woods and the water. Verse 7, the servants to maintain it. Verse 7 also, great possessions of cattle for one thing. Verse 8, material possessions such as silver and gold. Pausing at that point to ask, it is interesting in a materialistic age like ours to base one's life on things like this, but... Here's what we should note from the Word of God. Even this earth is but temporary. It too is not going to last on and on. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This earth is not going to last perpetually. It too is going to pass away in a great fire at the last age and last time. It's also to be noted beyond that, that even given the character of our life, after you and I pass away, who do we leave all of this to? Solomon noticed in chapter 2 the sadness of often leaving it to someone who uses it foolishly, wasting it, using it in ways we would never have approved. Solomon found that troubling. You'll notice that all these possessions that we think about do not then form a solid and stable foundation. In this life, if we base it upon that, how shifting and how unlasting it really is. You'll notice in Hebrews 1, verses 12 and 13, it says on that occasion, this old earth, given even the character of the sky, is going to be rolled up like a garment and cast aside. It doesn't last, my friend. May we never forget that though it's important to have enough funding and money to help take care of the needs of life, one mustn't look upon that as the basis, as the foundation for character. It is interesting to note beyond that, some look to something else we have found in these verses as well. Verse number 7, I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Solomon, you see, had a great deal of control. There were many people who answered to him. After all, he was the king of the empire. Every person was subject in one way or another to Solomon. There are many in our world who clamor for that kind of authority. They want to be over other people. They want to control them. They want to give direction to them. They want to provide orders to them so that they are the ones that are in power. Being power-hungry is something that can be a very disastrous thing for those who don't know how to handle the power. 
and who are not able to wield it properly to bring about productiveness in the lives of others. Solomon said, I had servants beneath me. Is power in life something that leads to character? Consider these ideas. Solomon was in position to appreciate this. Even the queen of Sheba, according to 1 Kings chapter 10, came to visit him. She was impressed with the nature of his empire and the wealth that was to be seen and the wisdom that Solomon was able to share. However, we're again of power to note in verse 11, Solomon said, This is vanity, vexation of spirit, and striving after the wind. Isn't it true in light of statements like that? You and I should strive to have a good name, Proverbs 22.1. And as we strive to have that good name, the Word of God expressly addresses all of us in our position in life, whether we be employers or employees, whether we be parents or whether we be children, whether we be individuals that are in high repute among people or whether we be in low. God's Word addresses all of us and says that we are to use our abilities and talents in that station in a way that would bring glory and honor to God. Colossians 3 verse 18 on to chapter 4 verse 1 addresses various individuals such as husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And in every case, God says you can serve God in that station by in fact recognizing your character isn't based on that station. It's based on your relationship to God. And as long as you and I will remember that thought and live to the glory of God, always setting our affection on things above that, will be the valuable way God can use us appropriately. In Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. You'll notice with me then that power and control in life by itself is not something on which one can hang the balance of character. Finally, you might notice this text in James 4.4. It's often the case that when one in a position of power wishes to gain the attention of and also to gain the approval of others, one will do what the others want. But the Bible commands us not to be pleasers of me in Galatians 1.10, but rather to understand that if we're the friends of the world, we're the enemy of God, James 4 verse 4. Solomon tried something else in this passage too. In addition to all of these, what about some more specific details concerning wealth? Verses 7 and 8, I got me servants and maidens, but then with them, he says, I had great possessions, verse 7. Verse 8, I gathered me also silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. One of the most frequent teachings in all of the Bible has to do with money. It may be that that's a shocking thing. We might think that the subject of heaven is the most common, or the subject of hell is the most common, or the subject of the character of the death of Christ. And to be sure, those things occur frequently. But as one looks through the gospel accounts, the single most common theme in the Lord's preaching ministry was how one deals with money. That's such a matter that is a problem in every age, not just ours here in America in the 21st century, 
But even in those in the first century, how do rightly I look at money? How do I rightly use it and employ it? How often did the Lord remind us that our disposition toward money may well determine in grand order where we will spend eternity. In 1 Timothy 6, verse number 10, Paul writing to Timothy said, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The verses just previous to that had pointed out that they who would be rich... That is to say, those who have that as their singular focus in life. I want to be rich. I want to have possessions and a lot of them. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, They are guilty of perdition and lead themselves into destruction. How plain could the Word of God be on that point? Doesn't it remind us that this matter of possessions and wealth highlights the feature that Solomon had all of this? 2 Chronicles 1 verse 15 reminds us that silver in Jerusalem was as prevalent as rocks when Solomon was the king. Now my friend, that is money in abundance. We all know how often we can find a rock in Putnam County or Jackson County, Tennessee. And yet silver was just as plentiful as rocks. What does that remind us when we think about things like this? Luke 12 verse 15 Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Jesus speaking on that occasion, He simply said, Your worth and mine is not based upon the size of the account, the size of the house, the length of the car. Those don't determine our worth before God, and they do not determine our character. Furthermore, in Mark 8 verses 36 and 37, what shall a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? As the Lord made that statement, doesn't it remind us of some marvelous things to think about on the day of judgment? Richest person in the world, if he comes to that stage and that point and finds himself lacking and wanting before God, he would have traded every penny he'd ever had for entrance into heaven. Isn't that remarkable to consider and powerful to think about? I would ask you to think, in that very verse he said, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Beyond that, you might notice, in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust hath corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust hath corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus, it seems, is, ask, is asking us a pertinent question. Where, Randy Bybee, have you placed your treasure? Is it here upon earth, in the shifting sands of possessions, in the shifting sands of power of control or other things we've listed? Or rather, are you laying it up with clear and powerful focus toward the character of heaven? Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make. All that I treasure and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the call, in the soul that answers the call for me? 
Shall the great judge come in when my task is through, my spirit for gaining great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find all that I worked for I left behind? It would be so sad to have left it all behind. That kind of poem, the author of whom I do not know, doesn't it remind us about the very things that Solomon is trying to teach us too? The next element that Solomon tried was wisdom. You might notice in verse number 9, he expressly makes this statement. I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Human learning, knowledge, human wisdom also can so often serve as a standard and basis in the mind of many for character. After all, isn't it amazing when you look at some of the features we do often at our country place a high priority upon education. Thirteen years of public education, quite often there's at least two years of preschool before that. Then there's four years in a college or university, and sometimes beyond that there's another four or five years of postgraduate study. May well add up to 25, 26, 27 years of education. Again, we prize it greatly. And often individuals learn and are able to help people in such a grand way. But we might quickly submit by saying if that's our focus, if we think that that's the basis of character, and if that's what will make us approved in standing before God, we have failed to appreciate verses like this. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, last chapter of this book. Solomon there on that occasion said, "...of the making of many books there is no end." And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Sometimes my students take a verse like that one, or at least its premise, much too seriously. He doesn't say don't study at all. But if that is the focus and basis of life, one has missed the point. For all this knowledge will be of no help when we come to stand before God on that day of judgment. Knowing the features of physics or math won't get one into heaven. Knowing the Word of God and doing it will. It is interesting to notice this verse in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. That noble prophet of olden age and day made this statement. He said, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord, not in his own wisdom, not in his own knowledge, but let him glory in the fact he knows God and is obedient to God's will. Finally, you might appreciate Paul's famous refrain of 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 29. Paul said it's through the foolishness of preaching that God chose to save those that believe. Men may often look upon the preaching of God's Word as foolish. It's a 2,000-year-old book. What can it say to a modern age? Paul said this is what God has chosen, to me the means whereby to save the sin-sick souls of men. We need to appreciate then knowledge by itself. Human knowledge isn't a stable foundation for life. You might perhaps appreciate beyond all of that this conclusion. I know we've each been waiting for it, and thankfully Solomon provides it. If the basis for character and for life is not possessions, and mirth and laughter, and power and control over others, if it's not the features of the possessions we've seen, and the nature of human wisdom, then where is it? What's left? Chapter 12, verse 13 sums it up. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. At this point, notice he didn't say, I found the answer to be money. 
I found it to be power. I found it to be wisdom, he says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The whole reason you're here upon this earth and the whole reason that I'm here is ultimately based on obeying God, learning of Him, doing His commandments, following His way. All of these others are just blessings that we can enjoy here on life to be properly used with talent and appreciation. But the ultimate basis must be God and His Word. That brings me to close the lesson with this question. What kind of foundation then is your character of life based on? Is it the creek gravel with a tractor on it, digging itself further in and soon going to be buried? Or is it something solid, stable and lasting, such that a life can be erected as a superstructure of that which can glorify God? If it is the former, please begin to make some changes today. If you have never become a Christian, today would be the day to start. This 11th day of September, 2011, could be your spiritual birthday, your sins washed away in the watery grave of baptism. If we could assist you in that, realize there are some prerequisites. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Acts 8, 36-38. You must repent of your sins as commanded in Acts 2, 38. You must confess the great name of Jesus as the Son of God, as again affirmed in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 and then to be baptized for the remission of sins. Upon so doing, you're saved, 1 Peter 3.21. Once you have become a Christian, walk faithfully with the Lord hand in hand until death, Revelation 2.10. If you stumble along the way and sin in a public way, you may need the prayers of saints and those who are aware of that sin. And today, we'd be happy to pray with you, happy to pray for you. Number seven was God. The only foundation of life, 1 Corinthians 3.11, is Jesus the Christ. Is your life built and based upon Him today? If it is, praise be unto God. Continue to live wisely. But if not, make some changes and come to Jesus while He begs and pleads you to do so. And would you not even do that now while together we stand and while we sing?